Good morning. Our central text comes from Matthew 6, 9 through 10, and Matthew 13, 44 through 50. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And from Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good good into containers but threw away the bad so it will be at the end of the age the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth this is the word of the lord My name's Chaz, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're in a series talking about prayer, but instead of uh, talking about it, why don't we do it as we're all still trying to warm up here? How about that? The heat's broken in my car, so I might heat up by 5 p.m. today, I guess. I don't know. Um, Lord, we, um, we are thankful that so many things have come together that have really challenged us as a church body to really evaluate how we're doing in prayer. And Lord, at the end of the day, the goal of prayer is to know you more, and through, through this workshop this afternoon or after the service and this series, I do pray that at the, by the time we are done with this series, we would know you more. We'd find in our hearts just longing to pray. And Lord, I just confess uh, <laughs> the sense of fraudulency even teaching on prayer when I know in my own life just how self-reliant and I am on myself and how little pray it feels like at times. So we lift all that to you in Jesus' name. Uh, so I read a fascinating article this week about a Tennessee man, which oftentimes when you read an article about a Tennessee man, you have to brace yourself. You never know what might come after that. But uh, a man, his name is uh, Nick Slade. He's 31 years old, went to bed one night, woke up the next morning, a millionaire. Okay? Apparently it had slipped his mind that uh, the day before during a pit stop with his boss, that he had bought, he had purchased a Tennessee cash lottery ticket, and somewhere along the way, late that afternoon, he grabbed his ticket, he remembered it, and looked at the app, and it's just sure enough, I mean, literally every number is reading across. He couldn't believe it. And so he just sent a flurry of text messages to his wife, uh, which she didn't get any of them, and he just drove right to her place of work. She didn't know what he was there for. But finally, as he said, he said, I showed her the ticket and I showed her the app and she just, she stood over me crying. <laughs> she just kept looking at the ticket and looking at me. So that, you know what they did? They decided, you know what's the best course of action? Let's make sure we keep this ticket safe and secure until we go to lottery officials. And that was the plan, except for the fact that this man's brother was in town that day and he decided he'd hang out with his brother between a trip, to, a trip to Taco Bell, O'Reilly's Auto Parts, then back home to the hotel, pulls out his pockets, and what did you guess? It's gone. It's missing. 
So they frantically retrace their steps, make it back to the O'Reilly's auto parts, and they're fluttering in the breeze next to a tire in the parking lot is this ticket with a footprint on it. In his words, it's a million-dollar ticket, and someone stepped right over it. We're in a series titled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray, and these are, these are the words spoken by Jesus' disciples when they're watching Jesus pray, and they're, they're asking him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And from there, Jesus taught them the Lord's Prayer, which is probably the most recited prayer maybe in all of human history. We all, many people know it, they've said it, but like something just sitting in the parking lot is worth so much. There's this little nugget right here that we all step over that's right here in the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus says, pray like this, your kingdom come. And what does that mean? Why is he saying to pray your kingdom come? And how would that reshape our lives? We're looking at different passages that accompany each week the Lord's Prayer. And we're looking at these three short parables that occur nowhere else but in Matthew, Matthew's Gospels. And they're short, they're brief. But here in that, we see the value of the kingdom and this treasure that we're invited to be praying for. And what would it look like every day if we're actually praying that? So we're going to look at three simple things. The value of the kingdom, the sobering finality of the kingdom, and Jesus' pearl of great price. Praying the kingdom every day. Your kingdom come, value of the kingdom, the finality of it, and Jesus' pearl of great price. So let's take a look at the first point. Now, as I just mentioned, uh, these short parables, they don't occur anywhere else. They're very brief, so it's easy to sort of overlook. But I would argue that the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field, these two initial parables, they tell us so many essential things about the kingdom of God. But not only that, they really teach us about some of the hard wiring that Jesus knows about the human heart that these, these, these parables point to. Uh, I don't know how many of you were here. Were, many of you here last spring when we did the Easter series and leading up to Easter, where we just talked about the resurrection over and over, six weeks straight. How many of you were here for that? Good chunk of you. And you might remember something we said. The resurrection points to hope. And the thing that is so true about us as human beings, we are unequivocally, we are hope-shaped creatures. I mean, when you and I, when we, if the moments in life where we've ever said, you know, life right now feels like hell on earth. Those are the moments when hope is waning in our life. These are the moments when it is, we feel like it is just slipping away. When we lose hope, one of the things that happens to us is we, we literally lose the will to live. And what hope does for us, hope is, is so, so critical for all of us that when we have hope and we don't lose it, we can grab hold of that and it can just carry us through some of the hardest times in life. I mean, there is just a surprising and shocking amount of endurance that we're capable of when we, when we have hope. In fact, I was reading an article uh, earlier this week as well about actor Mark Ruffalo. Uh, he's been in a lot of different movies, most notably... Derek's favorite movie, 13 Going on 30. Um, a great movie, as you may remember. And uh, it actually was pretty kitschy, but it's been a while. Uh, anyway, uh, here's a man who literally gives real-life image of the phrase, it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. Because for 10 years, Mark Ruffalo literally was just struggling to make ends meet. He was bartending and just kept showing up to audition after audition all told, he went to 600 auditions and heard the same word over and over and over again. No. 
How do you do that? How do you not give up? That's, it's because of hope. That's what hope does. In fact, when he finally showed up one day in front of a casting director's, they literally, they're just so impressed with his range, his skill, his ability, the way he carried himself. They said, where have you been the last 10 years? And he said, well, I've been under your noses for the past 10 years. Where have you been? And that's what we see here in this parable, this first one. Jesus is telling us, he's teaching us through these two parables, that hope is right there underneath our noses, and it just goes right past us. We step right over it like a lottery ticket sitting in front of O'Reilly's. Not that that's a very common event for us. But here's Jesus, and almost he gathers his disciples, and he looks into their little weary eyes, and he says to them, and he, he's, essentially what he's doing is he's imaginatively capturing their hearts, and he's asking them a question, how is your hope today? Where is your hope? What is it in right now? And the first one illustrates it because Here's a tenant. Here's, here's a person of, of likely very meager means. He's either renting a field because he can't own it, or maybe he's just an employee. We don't really know. But nonetheless, he's out there working in this field day after day, and all of a sudden he stumbles upon buried treasure. And, you know, this wasn't out of the realm of possibilities because there wasn't FDIC, you know, insurance back then. There weren't savings and loans and banks and lockboxes. What people would do was they would bury their treasure in the ground because they're afraid of thieves or invading armies. But if somebody like that buries their stuff in the ground and goes off and maybe they die, maybe they hit their head and they forget where it was, they lose their map, it falls out of their pocket, whatever, it just sits there undiscovered for, for maybe generations. Well, this man discovers it. And Jesus doesn't get into the ethics about this. He doesn't say, well, you know, he should have told the owner and all that. That's not the point. The point of the parable is he's teaching us the value of the kingdom. And this man, unlike the Tennessee man, he's not cavalier. As soon as he finds his treasure, he, he takes it out of the ground. He doesn't run off the falafel bell or something like that. I worked on that all week, but it just didn't land. Uh, or go to an O. Ishmael's Camel's Park store. How's that pastor joke work for you? Anyway, all right, moving on. But he has a life-altering discovery, and what he does is he buries it right back into the ground because he doesn't want to lose it. And here's a man of meager means, and what does he go do? He, he hardly has any two nickels to rub against each other, and yet he finds every nickel he can, and he impoverishes himself all the way to the end. Totally bankrupts himself to buy this entire field. Here's a man who's who's temporarily po in poverty in order to have the field, because as soon as he has the field, he has everything. Now, the other one, with a merchant, uh, is a little different. Here's a man who's probably very wealthy. You know, you don't own pearls and be a pearl merchant uh, living day-to-day -day on a paycheck. This is a man who's seen beauty every day of his life. Uh, he's probably lived a very extravagant lifestyle, probably traveled all over the, the world. And yet every day, no matter how much beauty he's seen, there's been this thing inside him where he said, you know, there's still, there's this thing that I haven't found yet. I know there's this perfect pearl out there. I mean, I know beauty when I, when I look at it, but I know there's got to be this perfect pearl out there that I've, I've just been dreaming of. And finally, one day he actually sees it. And he actually, and unlike the man who could take some of the treasure, he literally now sells everything and he's in poverty. For the rest of his life, he can't draw wages from this pearl. And Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's teaching these two parables. These are two, these are all these men who've left everything 
to follow him. They've left possessions. They've had temporary partings with family. You know, they've dealt with persecution, long days. They've lost their careers, reputations. And, and what happens is when life starts getting harder and harder and you're a Christ follower, you start asking that question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Where does this end? And it's literally the same question later after Jesus, you know, literally tells a man, the rich young ruler, to sell everything he has to, to, and then come follow him, have treasure in heaven. Literally, one of the coolest things that happens is the apostle Peter opens his mouth and he literally says to them, wait a second, I just saw what happened. We've left everything to follow you. What then will we have? And it literally wasn't until I read John Eldridge's uh, book, All Things New, where I really realized something about what happens. Jesus is not offended by that question. We've left everything. What do we get? And Jesus doesn't look at Peter and say, oh my, how unaltruistic of you to ask such a question. You're doing cost-benefit analysis, aren't you, right now? Seriously? Don't you know that virtue is its own reward? No, he doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus says this phrase to him. He says that the restoration of all things, it's the word, Greek word, palingenesia, the, the remaking of the entire world. When the answer to your kingdom come is actually fulfilled on this planet, when literally everything is made new, and when you, when you understand, I hope you're following the Lord's Prayer, asking for his kingdom to come, these two parables, and this phrase, the restoration of all things, when we add all of that up, we're introduced to a treasure that has been lost, to a promise that was made the first time Adam Eve stepped one foot out of Eden into the wilds east of it. And it's a treasure that's been lost because, you know, even for the Israelites, between all the carnage of the exile and then, you know, all these different occupations that came into their land, they began to have little smaller treasures and smaller hopes, political power. These, are, these Romans leave all these different things. But way back when, the prophet Isaiah, he said this, and this is not a misprint. This is not from the book of Revelation, though, that's repeated again. Isaiah said, there's a day coming when the answer to the Lord's prayer will happen, and behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people and no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Literally, a day is coming when humanity will return from its long exile. When literally a world is coming, when the kingdom comes in its fullness, that when we pick up the phone, and I don't know if there will actually be phones, but when we pick up the phone, we will not be getting traumatic news on the other end. To a world in which literally no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. To a world when we build, we'll inhabit. When we plant, we'll dwell. Before we even call, God will answer. When the lion will eat straw like the ox. When we do not hurt or destroy one another on his holy mountain. 
when fathers don't abandon their family, when addictions no longer ravage generation after generation, when true justice and equity is given perfectly all the time, when our bodies no longer betray us at all, that they function as they are, that all those plaguing inner demons, those inner voices constantly rattling you, and coming after you, assaulting you every day with accusation. But what you are not, and what you've done wrong, are silence. When you look out, not only do you not have to lock your door, but you won't even question your leaders anymore and their motives. Now, I want to stop here because I've talked about this several times in the last couple of years. And you know what happens almost every time I talk about it? Glazing over eyes. I know you've not been with me for a good part of this, because you know what? It sounds like I'm reading from a children's book right now, doesn't it? It all sounds so fanciful. Wow, what is this? But the prophet Isaiah and Jesus, when we are invited to pray your kingdom come, this is what he's pointing to. He's saying, I want to ask you, is this your greatest hope right now of your life? Is this... Is this the thing that you are willing to sell everything for? And the reality is, for almost all of us, including myself, the answer is no. You know, God has invited us to make him our first love, but what he's done with the kingdom of God, he's actually asking us, he's saying, I'm inviting you to make this the greatest and most sure and wildest and daring and brazing hope of your life that can't be taken from you or ignored. Jesus has been telling us through these parables is this is a hope that we are not to bury in the ground, step over, be cavalier with, but every day of our lives we are called to pray for multiple times a day. And the reality is the reason that many of us here are not praying for your kingdom to come is simply because we're hoping for our kingdom to come more than anything else. Our smaller little dreams, our smaller little hopes that are important to us, But these are the things we're holding out for, willing to sell almost everything for. And yet Jesus is saying there's only one thing that is truly worth leaving everything behind, and it is the fullness of my kingdom coming, and it will happen. It brings some sobering things, and now we're getting into some of the doozies that are right here in our passage. You know, here in the West, okay, another thing that's challenging about talking about the kingdom of God is because we don't live in a kingdom, Okay. You know, we're just not used to this. When we hear about kingdoms and thrones, we think of violence and conquering and marauding and all kinds of things, you know. But the other thing that makes talking about the kingdom coming in its fullness that is so sobering if you let it is the reality it means there's a king. And we are not that king. When I read about all the things that are coming about the kingdom, you know, just the absence of death, suffering, you know, just my body working, my back not hurting like it is at the moment, the heat of my truck working, okay? (laughs) I can sign up for that all day long. But when we're talking about a world being made new, we're not talking about praying for utopia to come. We're talking about a king of a kingdom to be made manifest on this planet. You see, Jesus Christ is the king of a kingdom that, again, sounds like I'm talking maybe out of a children's book, of an invisible kingdom. 
made visible through the church, okay? When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying for the invisible kingdom of God to come physically on this earth in which Jesus is a king, and it begs a very sobering question, is this what I want? Is this what we want? Do we really want a king? I mean, is this, when you cut, if you're cut and you bleed, is this the hope coming out of you? Is this the treasure of your life where you're, you're really saying, what, what I really want, I mean, this is the pearl of great price in my life that I've been searching for my whole life, is this, I am longing for a true king to come and sit on his throne on this planet. Because see, when we pray your kingdom come, do you know what it means? It means may my kingdom no longer remain. Aldous Huxley, uh, he, he put it this way. He said, our kingdom go <laughs> is a necessary and unavoidable corollary, corollary of thy kingdom come. Uh, Edmund Waller, he was an English poet in the 17th century. He put it like this great poem. He said, his kingdom come. For this we pray in vain, unless he does in our affections reign. How fond it were to wish for such a king, and no obedience to his scepter bring. Whose yoke is easy and his burden is light, his service freedom and his judgment's right. One of the things this is really pointing to is that the fullness of the kingdom come, it really does require, and that's why Jesus, when he's saying, teach us to pray, he includes this. He's saying, if you want to keep this your hope, and be ready for the king, you have to pray this every day of your life, multiple times. Okay, and next week we're going to really look at the practical aspect of what does that look like in the present day. But these two parables, the first two really point to hope. But one of the things this points to is really sobering. Because if we're really praying for his kingdom to come, the last parable about the net tells us also the finality of the kingdom when it does come. One of the things that we're told, okay, little theology moment here. But right now, you know, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, you know, he, he won, okay? He became king. He took a stone after that. He defeated the enemy, sin, the evil one, death. But he took his stone in heaven, and what that means is we live in this overlapping period right now where Jesus is on his stone in heaven, okay? And he has offered this gift of repentance and forgiveness before he comes back as king. And we, the church, are the voice of that repentance to the world through the gospel. Okay, but, but what he's also saying is literally there's a finality that even mercy has its limits. That a day is coming when that offer is no longer there. And that is incredibly sobering. And that's why he's telling this parable, again, that his disciples would truly understand. They grew up in Galilee. They fished. This is the industry of Galilee. And they were used to this. And here's this parable of the net. It would make sense where, you know, two boats would typically hold one end of the net, and they would have a drag net, and they would just go through the water. Or sometimes they'd actually hook it up to the land, and one boat would be over there, and they'd kind of do a semicircle back into the land, and they'd collect all this fish. It's a very efficient way to do it. But then they'd get on shore, and the fishermen would sort through the valuable and the less valuable ones, and they would discard the least valuable. That is sobering. What does that mean? Well, let me, let me just say something real quick. When Jesus is talking about they kept the valuable ones, it's tempting for us to read into that, oh, I know what that means. The good people. 
The bad people got thrown out, you know. The, the, the very immoral ones tossed out in the outer darkness, and it's the good people and the good ones that get to stay, and they're the more valued. But one other thing we must say is that earlier Jesus was teaching in the Sermon of the Mount, and one of the things he said was this, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. And when he said that, he was saying, blessed are you who are spiritually bankrupt and know it. Blessed are you who are not looking to make yourself valuable through your own righteousness or your reputation or career, all these different accolades, but instead, a Christian, and and why they're found valuable in the end is because they've dropped on the knee and said, morally, ethically, everything. I'm bowing the knee and seceding my throne and saying, you're the king because I cannot make myself righteous. I cannot even grant myself pardon for all I've done. He's giving us this parable because, again, it's not saying who are the good people. <laughs> it sounds confusing. The good people are the bad people and know it so that they can be good through Jesus. Does that make it clear now? Very good. Hey, okay. <laughs> that's what he's saying. Those who know they're impoverished because it's only the impoverished who can drop the knee and say, I'm not the king, and I don't want to be, and I don't long to be. But when we are praying, your kingdom come, we're asking for this every day of our lives. And again, we're going to camp out on it all next week. We're saying, I want every molecule of the kingdom to come, because what I'm most hoping in in my life is I'm wanting a good king to come and take his throne, like those warm feelings we get when we watch Aragorn at the end, you know? Lord of the Rings. What would a sermon be without Lord of the Rings, right? You've got to have an analogy, but we're longing for that. Full justice. So let me just review real quick. I know this is kind of different stuff this morning, but what we all we saw in the first point is that, first of all, we are called, when we pray your kingdom come, to make the kingdom our greatest hope and treasure of our lives. And that's why there's so many analogies of rich and ruler point to literally selling everything for it because it's our greatest desire. And only until it's our greatest hope will we be willing to make any kinds of sacrifices like that or endure all the painful things that life can throw at us. But two, and this is all we'll look at next week, is it does call for a present-day active reality of responding and saying that in my life, what we are calling, being called to do is make way for the king now and forevermore. But this parable than that introduces a real sobering reality that this world as we know it, including its inhabitants, will not continue forever. It can't. If it takes the death of Jesus for our salvation, when this world is remade, it's not just going to blow up, but it's not going to happen with a sneeze. <laughs> it's going to be rather large. But there comes a point, and here we see right here, Poor Summer, she read it. At, I don't think she even knew it was right here in this last verse here. It's like on that chipper note. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, let's get Steve up here to finish that part, okay? All right, real quick. Since seminary, I've encountered multiple scholars who would say, look, when we're talking about the subject of hell, obviously, one, it's not popular uh, many people in my position like to not talk about it because it doesn't help attendance or whatever. But third, uh, the other thing uh, is this, is it's confusing. 
But most scholars I interact with say, we're talking about fire and hell and all that. You know, it's a metaphor. But it's a metaphor for something worse. Because the reality is, is when Jesus comes to his kingdom, do you know what Jesus is going to do for those who don't want to be in his kingdom? Is to grant them their very wish. When if you and I spend our whole lives saying, my kingdom come, my kingdom come, you know, trampling, you know what Jesus is going to do? In his perfect justice, he's going to say, okay, you can have that. There's a Silverman illustration that's made its circuit through the years. But a woman named Cynthia Heimel, she was in the 1970s, lived in New York City and knew all these celebrities uh, pr- prior to their fame. And then knew them afterwards. They, you know, they worked in the cafe she attended. They drove her cabs and th- different things. And later in the 1990s, she, she wrote a, in the Village Voice, which is I think in Greenwich Village, um, wrote an article about that whole experience. And this is what she said. I pity celebrities. <laughs> no, I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Streisand, they were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. You see, Sly, Bruce, and Barbara wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that something that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened. And they were still them. And the disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. And I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and giggles merry along when you realize you want to kill yourself. Now, I don't think that's exactly what God does, but I definitely think she's spot on of what it means to truly get your kingdom come and to crumble upon you. Gary Black puts it this way. What is key for us to wrestle with and resolve for ourselves is whether the destiny of eternal living is something we truly desire. That's a figure of speech. But he says, God is the sort of person who would let into into heaven anyone who could possibly stand it. And therefore, a great measure of what God will determine or judge is the degree which any human being is prepared for the intensity of his being. And if... In the end, we could thrive or shrivel in despair or run for cover under weighty glorious circumstances. As Jesus' parable of Lazarus and the rich man reveals, being out of God's presence was perhaps the most graceful thing God could have allowed for the rich man, given the choices he made and the person he had become. For those of us every day who are asking God to make the kingdom our greatest hope and the king of this kingdom our greatest love, then what happens is there's really three things that kind of immediately jump out. As we become the kind of people every day when when we're falling more in love with this holy, just king that we've built our lives on, we'll have more awareness of our sin, not less. And more need to bow the knee, not less. But actually, I know this isn't what many of us are thinking. This is not a bad thing. There's something that happens if you're willing and brave enough and have the courage to really pray your kingdom come in every aspect of my life and be my greatest hope, there's going to become something that's actually going to make your life look like house money. You will feel increasingly no longer at ease in this world. 
And the most powerful saints in the world got that. And lastly, there's a restlessness that will come over, a longing for the world to be made, as it were, for the words of Isaiah, to actually be made manifest. Praying your kingdom come invites us to make the kingdom our first hope. The king of the kingdom, our first love. But it also invites us into the great hope and joy of Jesus. I know there's been some sobering things in point two. Let me just preach the gospel to you. When Jesus told these parables, and they're wonderful parables, you know, they force us to look at us, you know, in our lives and what is my hope? And what is the pearl of great price in my life? You know, wow, the finality of the kingdom. Of course, th that is absolutely needed to do. That's, Jesus told his disciples these things. But when Jesus was telling these parables, one of the things that's easily missed is this. They're describing his reality. When Jesus told the parable, man who found treasure in the field, we didn't talk about this earlier, it doesn't follow that he then, with a sense of obligation and duty, sold everything he had and bought the field. We heard it earlier. What did it say? The man found the treasure. What did he go and do? It said, then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. But it serves as a great illustration for us to understand making the kingdom our greatest treasure will bring joy out of our lives, but it also understands what the writer of Hebrews was saying. Because the writer of Hebrews is telling us in 2 Corinthians 8, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Mark Ruffalo enduring 600, <laughs> 600 auditions. Hope works. Joy works. And joy is what kept Jesus Christ in love on the cross. And yet we're also introduced to this reality that Jesus, like the merchant who owned pearls, he had everything he needed in heaven. He was walking on streets of gold. His gates were made of pearl. There was no suffering. There was no evil, no death. And Jesus in the kingdom of God had perfect and unfiltered access to his beloved father. He lived in a world without sin, suffering, or evil. He had everything. And yet, like the merchant, he had set his eyes on one pearl. I'm up here, but there's this one pearl I've, I've just been dreaming of, and I've, I'm ready to find this one pearl, and I will leave everything for this one thing so I could just gaze my eyes on it and just stare at it forever. And like that merchant, he set his eyes on that, and upon discovering it, he impoverished himself to have it for himself. Like the man who discovered treasure in the field, who in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought it, that's what Jesus did for you. That's the gospel. These parables point to our lives, and of course you should do some introspective work listening to this. But first, and this is talking about him, that you're the pearl. You're the treasure in the field that Jesus Christ lost everything for so he could have it. We are his treasure. We're the pearl of great price. He impoverished himself so that we could be rich in him. When that is your hope, when that is the king you're praying to, 
it starts to do stuff in here. It starts to melt stuff, the dross, the stone, all the hard things. His kingdom come, for this we pray in vain, unless he does, and our affections reign. How fond it were if wish for such a king, and no obedience to his scepter bring, whose yoke is easy, and his burden is light, his service freedom, and his judgment's right. Lord, I just now, listen to it, I, I repent. I mean, I don't know what else to say. I, I know that so much of my life, and I know I'm not alone, all of us here, we find ourselves just constantly saying, I'm the king, I'm the king, I'm good, I'll settle for these smaller little things. And I just ask that you'd melt our hearts over this. But these parables point to you. Lord, help us to see that. I mean, to believe that, literally. That, that this is what you want to gaze at. Your finished work, shining up the pearl that we were always meant to be because of you. So Lord, I do pray. I pray for, if we are not, if we, if we know, if we're listening and we're saying, you know, I don't know if this is really the hope of my life or if I have really actually bowed the knee, I pray that you would allow us to have the kindness to know that that's the truth. But also, Lord, to know it's rather pretty simple. All we have to do is say, this is what I want. I'm tired of my kingdom come. I want your kingdom to come. And I do ask by your spirit, you grant us to do that. And for those of us who are believers, and there's a lot of us in the room who are, especially the next week, I pray you prepare our hearts now for that passage. To really, what does it look like every day to yield that? And to find the good news and the treasure in doing that in every aspect of our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.